us to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be reading this morning from Philippians 1, verses 7 through 11. If you're using the Red Pew Bible, Philippians chapter 1 is found on page 830. Philippians 1, verses 7 through 11. In Jesus' name. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I came across this love note that I'd like to read to you. Little love note. It says this Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking off our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the state lottery. (laughs) Oh, true love. True love. The joy of true love. When I passed my sermon title on to Paula this week, she was quite impressed that I had thought of Valentine's Day. Well, I hadn't. (laughs) Don't give me that much credit. What is true love? It seems that a group of professionals posed this question to a group of four to eight-year-olds. What does love mean? And they answered it this way. One eight-year-old answered, When my grandmother got arthritis... She couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Another five-year-old said, love is when you kiss all the time, and then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. (laughs) Terry, age four, said, love is what makes you smile even when you're tired. Chris, age seven, put it this way. He said, love is when mommy sees daddy all smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsomer than Robert Redford. Billy, age four, said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. I like that. Tommy, age six, says love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. 
Chrissy, age six, put it this way. She said, love is when you go out to eat and you give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. Another seven-year-old said, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) I'd like that picture. (laughs) Noel, age seven, said, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every single day. And probably my favorite... Probably my favorite. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Now, I think the Apostle Paul would agree with Jessica, an eight-year-old who said it this way. She said, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. Paul doesn't shy away from saying how he felt. And he spoke of his love for other believers often. Might that have been a secret to his joy? Is there a connection between how well we love and the level of joy in our lives? I would say yes, indeed. The more love you have in your life, the more joy you will find. Let me state that again. It's really our main thought this morning. The more love you have in your life, the more joy you will find. The nine-flavored fruit that's listed in Galatians 5.22 begins this way. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Love, joy, side by side. The more love you have in your life, the more joy you will find. And that's the subject we're going to take up today in these verses 7 through 11. But before we look at verses 7 through 11, I need to remind you of my approach to what I believe is the main theme of this book of the Bible. It really reveals our joy thresholds, our joy thresholds. We often speak of a pain threshold. I mean, how much pain can you take before you go, ah, I can't take it anymore. Well, what what is our our level of pain that finally we get to that place where we're just kind of fit to be tied? Well, what's our joy threshold? What's our joy threshold? What brings your joy up? What brings your joy down? What does it take to steal your joy? Or to be more accurate, what are those things which we allow to take our joy away? Remember, no one or nothing can rob us of joy without our consent. No one or nothing can rob us of joy without our consent. So while we may talk about joy robbers, and we will throughout this this study, the truth isn't that they stole your joy, but that you gave it up. See, our joy level is not based on our circumstances. It rests on the choices we make. This morning, we see the choice to love. The choice to love. The more love you have in your life, the more joy you will find. And Paul models that. And he prays that for this church in Philippi. And so in verses 7 through 11, we see first the expression of love. The expression of love. And then we'll look at the progression of love the expression of love, and then the progression of love. So first of all, expression of love. Look in your Bibles, if you're not there, to the the passage that that Doug read for us in Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to be picking it up at verse 7. Philippians chapter 1. Follow along 
with me. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Pretty sappy stuff here for the Apostle Paul. Feel this way and have you in my heart. I long for you. Affection. See, some have this notion of Paul that that he's cold and aloof and stern. Not the kind of guy that, that will give you warm fuzzies. Yet the more you read his letters to churches, you discover that isn't a fair assessment of Paul at all. He is a warm, compassionate man and full of love. And he's not afraid to tell others that he feels that way. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, he says. Now, the word translated to feel, there is uh, literally to think. I think some translations have that, to think. You see, how he thought of them moved to his heart. We might might send someone a text or, or, or drop someone a note that says, thinking of you. Well, what are we saying by that? We're saying, you're on my mind. You're on my heart. I'm praying for you. I'm concerned for you. There's a genuine concern there. We drop those words. I'm thinking of you. Well, Paul expresses his love for them by saying he's thinking of them, meaning he has them on his heart. He even uses those words. I have, I have you on my heart, which means he carries them around with him. They're very dear to him. He expresses his love by letting them know how much he longs for them. He, another phrase is usually, I long for you, for all of you. I long. It's a very strong term there, the word I long for you. It's a strong term for desire. It was used of an athlete who was straining at the finish line to finish first. And he's reaching out. I long for you. See, Paul didn't assume these believers in Philippi knew how he felt. He told them so. It's not a typical problem. Wife says to her husband, Hon, you haven't told me you love me in a long time. The husband replies, I told you once, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. (laughs) That husband made a big mistake. He's missed it. We must tell each other frequently. Let's not hold back telling our spouse of our love. Let's not hold back in telling our kids how we feel about them. Let's not hold back telling a mom or a dad or a brother or sister in Christ our appreciation, our love for them. Paul here models a depth of communication that we all ought to strive for. I mean, how often... A word of appreciation goes unsaid as we just make our way through life. We assume, oh, they know. Really? It's been said that many are dying on the vine for lack of encouragement. William Barclay put it this way. He said, it's easy to laugh at one's ideals. It's easy to pour cold water on others' enthusiasm. It's easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. 
He goes on. We have a Christian responsibility to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise, a word of thanks, a word of appreciation or cheer has kept a person on his feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. And who knows? The word you spoke this morning of encouragement might have kept someone on their feet. Is that true of us? Which way are we? Are we discouraging or encouraging? Is that true of me? Are we encouraging others? There's a tremendous joy that comes to those who hear words of appreciation and affirmation. Are we pouring out encouragement to others? Come on, let's spread it around generously. And there's joy to the one who gives it as well. Paul expresses his affections for them. And you say, well, what what do I do? I mean, wait, do I wait until I feel like it before I express my appreciation and and feelings? Well, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said it this way. He said, it'd be quite wrong to think that the way to become loving is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for us is all perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we learn one of the great secrets. When you you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. It's a choice. Now, having said that, now having said that, we've got to balance this a little bit. There's something to be said about feelings. Feelings. I kind of want to break out in song here, feelings, old feelings, but I won't. I'll spare you that. (laughs) But you catch Paul's emotions here? This is a very helpful section of Scripture because some Christians come across devoid of emotions. It's as if they attend the first church of Frigidaire, to uh, quote Andrew Crouch's phrase. I mean, where did we ever get this idea that the less emotion we display, the more Christian we are? Oh, we said things like, you can't trust your feelings, commonly heard in Christian homes and from pulpits. And that's usually followed up with something like, facts are your friends. Now, I get that. I get that. I get that. I've said it. I believe it. I mean, I remember that, that train illustration, that, that, um, that, that facts are the engine, remember? Facts are the engine, and then it pulls faith and, and feelings. That's the caboose. And, and the, the, the feelings will always catch up with our faith. Is that true? Is that true? I mean, if I do what is right, will feelings always catch up? What happens if they don't? Do I stop doing what is right? No. Now, this is where I agree with trusting facts over feelings. But let's be careful here that we don't compartmentalize too much. God has made us emotional beings. He created us with minds, wills, and hearts. Why is it that in some evangelical circles we are afraid of emotions? We're proud of our brains, yet ashamed of our feelings. We need to allow our feelings, our emotions to serve their proper function. I mean, certainly there is an emotionalism that wrongly puts our experiences and emotions at the center instead of the reliable rock of truth. And for one to go haywire emotionally is a danger to avoid. 
But isn't there also an intellectualism that can become heady, sterile, that excludes real transformation? For one, to to slip out of touch with reality and become emotionless is a danger to avoid on the other side. Let's not give the watching world the impression that Christianity is a mindless experience, nor should we give them the impression that it is an emotional, cerebral faith either. Paul isn't ashamed to tell them how he feels about them. And in verse 8, it's as if he was even at a loss for words to express the depth of his love for them. He says, God can testify how I long for all of you. He's not making an oath here, but a statement of fact. Only God could really vouch for his deep feelings for them. And we mustn't miss where this love originates. He speaks here of a mutual sharing in God's grace. He speaks here of the affections of Christ Jesus. It was the indwelling Christ that prompted such feelings. You want to love others? Then come back to how much Christ loves you. Be filled with his amazing love towards you. Because you know what? You aren't very lovable. And neither am I. Neither am I. Yet God loves us Anyway, I'm blown away by that. And loved ones, don't forget, we have the same father. We're supposed to be a family. And we sing, I'm surprised that you're a part of the family of God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I am glad that you're a part of the family of God. I said it wrong. (laughs) But really, I'm surprised you're a part of the family of God. I am surprised I'm a part of the family of God. I am. Why are we? God's grace. That's it. His grace. I didn't earn my way in. The joy of true love is found as we are so gripped by God's grace toward us. We are so compelled by his love that we aren't ashamed to express that love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see a beautiful expression of love in just two verses here. He goes on to express his love one other way. He prays for them, which is another expression of love is prayer. That's where Paul goes next in verses 9 through 11 under the heading of progression of love progression of love. Back in in verse 4, you remember Paul told them that he prayed for them. The idea is he prayed for them continually. He now lets us in a little as to what he prays, the content of his prayers. I mean, have you ever wondered how to pray for others? Well, it's a prayer like this that can can assist us. Listen to this prayer, verse 9. Listen to this prayer. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, there's so much to unpack here. I'm only going to grab a few things. But I do ask, are we praying this for one another? Are we praying this for one another? What binds our hearts together? I was thinking on that this past week. What binds our hearts together? Well, I would suggest to you that it isn't a vision statement. 
It isn't a purpose statement. It's helpful in as much as I believe in those. But it isn't that that's just going to automatically bind our hearts together. It, it isn't even, what else binds us? It isn't even that we like each other and drawn together by common interests. Again, that can be very helpful. But listen, we can't manufacture unity. We can't try and create it or simply duplicate what some other church is doing right and have everyone agree to it. Doesn't do it. What is it that binds our hearts together? A progression of love. A progression of love. Listen to what the words that Paul uses here. He says that your love may abound. Love may abound. The picture there is of a river that flows freely and rapidly. It's not to be, it's not, it isn't stagnant or, or trickle, but it's an intense raging outpour. Or perhaps you could picture a giant waterfall. And underneath this waterfall is a bucket with the water from the waterfall flowing over all sides of the bucket because the bucket cannot possibly contain the downpour. That's abounding love. And I asked myself, do I love like that? Was mine just a trickle? You may think you have a joy problem, but you really have a love problem. The more love you have in your life, the more joy you will find. See, it isn't enough to possess love. We must progress in love. Paul calls them to a love that abounds more and more. But do you see it here? Paul loves them so much that he can't let them stay where they are at. That, that, that's true of me towards you as well. Let me say this. And it's no secret that, that in my preaching, I get a little, what's the word, intense? Intense at times? I don't, don't even comment. Don't give me your word. But you know what I'm saying. I do. But please hear me when I say this. It is never, ever my intention to beat you up. Never. But to build you up. Because I know there is so much more God wants for us. I can't help but call you to to that. And in fact, it is the most loving thing I could do. I love you where you're at, but I love you too much to let you stay where you're at. So along with me, let's be known for a love that abounds more and more. Love never reaches a saturation point. We're to grow in how to love more people and how to love them all better. He's praying that have a dynamic love, a love that overflows and continues to grow. But folks, it isn't a wishy-washy kind of love. You know, the all you need is love, love, love stuff. There's a lot of confusion about the meaning of love in the world. Someone said this way, love is a feeling that you feel when you feel you have a feeling that you never felt before. That's helpful. (laughs) Tells me nothing. Don't miss two crucial aspects to true love here that Paul speaks of in verse 9. This is critical. He prays that their love may abound more and more. How? In knowledge, one, and depth of insight, two. We kind of just fly right through those words. 
Go back to that picture of a river that flows freely and rapidly. What keeps the water from destruction are the banks on both sides. We have experienced firsthand the devastation caused by flooding as the river swells and overflows beyond its banks. In the same way, it is knowledge and insight that keeps love within its banks. The joy of true love is is a love within proper limits. True love does not act in ignorance, but in truth. True love does not love indiscriminately so that we love everything. But we judge between right and wrong and good and evil and important and unimportant issues. See, when we love the wrong things, or we love blindly, or we love without real knowledge, or, or we love, we kind of give away our love outside the boundaries of truth, or, or we have a failure to speak the truth in love, disaster results. Devastation. True love is one that grows within the banks of knowledge and depth depth of insight. See the progression of love? It isn't mere love. It is a love that grows in knowledge, truth, God's word, and grows in the application of the truth. And Paul continues to show us this progression in verse 10. He says, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. In other words, what I think Paul is getting at here is that we ought to determine, we ought to determine the best ways to, best possible ways to please the Lord and how we love others. We ought to strive to the highest level of true love. The real test of a growing love is when we can choose between the better and the best. It's one thing to choose the good instead of the bad, but we go another level of our walk with Christ when we can discern what is best. That's what it says. What is best? We need to grow in discerning what is best. Because we get this all messed up. Oh, if you loved me, you wouldn't do that. That's not best. I will do this because I love you. What is best? This might be good over here, but it isn't good enough. I want what is best. We often settle with what is good. Check. This happens a lot in in selection of, of mates. It happens all the time. He says he's a Christian. Check. So that is good. I can marry him now. Check. Right? Does he live like a Christian? Well, no, but he says he's a Christian. Check. That's good, right? Is it best? Is it best? Discern what is best. It's good that I use my time over here. It's a good thing. Is it the best thing? Is that the best place for you to serve and use your time? Here are two questions we should ask as we face any decision. Two questions, very basic. What is right? What is best? That's it. Every decision. What is right? What is best? And think of all the headache and heartache we would be spared if we just asked those two questions. 
Should I leave my spouse? Should I go along with that business proposition? Should I? What is right? What is right? And then what is best? How do I work this out? What is the best way to go about this? You see, when it comes to loving others, we need to grow in knowing what is best and not just good. We have settled and said, good enough. I don't need to go any further. That's not what this prayer says. What is best? And this is why we need to be praying this for each other, for that kind of wisdom can only come from God as he fills us with knowledge and depth of insight. Only as we grow in knowing him more intimately can we come to even come close to, to, to being the, do, carrying out these, uh, this prayer here. Even come close to it. We need him. We need him. But our love must progress. The more love we have in our life, the more joy we will find. Are you growing in your love for others? Is our love deepening? Let me ask you this. Do we love in such a way that makes the gospel attractive? Do we love in such a way that people run to the church or they run from the church? It's one or the other. Which is greater, our love for self or our love for others? Do we love for what we will get in return or is it a sincere, pure love? Because he uses that word next, pure, sincere. Our love is to be absent of hypocrisy, not like Marie in writing to Jimmy in order to, you know, to get something. Not that kind of love. Paul uses the word pure in verse 10, which literally means here uh, to be judged by the Son. To be judged by the sun. The thought here is examining something in the sunlight. Ancient jars were examined for disguised cracks by holding them up against the rays of the sun. It's kind of like when when I've I've put on my, my shirt in the dark, thinking it matches with my pants and my tie until I get out into the sunlight and realize, oh boy, my wife's gonna be embarrassed. These colors that clash bad. So we might figure we aren't doing so badly in loving others until we, until we look intently into the word of God to see what he says about it. We're not to compare our love to, to others who love less than we do. We are to hold our love up to the light of God's word and the light of Jesus Christ and say, do I love like that? Don't compare to others. And what cracks do I see when I hold it up to that standard? Loving others is to be something we turn on and we turn off when necessary. It's to be a lifestyle of love. It's, it's to be who we are through and through. It's to be so real in our walk with Christ that genuine love spills out. See, because others are going to know if it's fake. They'll know it. Be who we are all the way to the core. That's what he says by pure and sincere. Be who we are all the way to the core. Or as one southern preacher put it, be who you is, because if you you is who you ain't, you ain't who you is. Yeah, I get the point. I can hardly say it. But who are we? Are we who we say we are? That's what he's getting at. 
What kind of people are we to be? Look at the result. Paul ends his prayer with a climactic finish. I need to get to this. Verse 11. He asks that they may, be, they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. Do you see the goal in all of this? We're back to where we began our worship this morning. It is all about We are filled with his love so that we can then love others. And we love others so that he's glorified in us. That's the goal of our lives. That's the goal of our church. And so let's find many expressions of love. May there be a progression in our love as it grows in knowledge and depth of insight, as it grows in discernment. How are we doing in love? How are we doing? No, you read these words. And you can't just go, well, that's nice, and do nothing, and do nothing. It's very clear that this kind of love, and if we could turn to 1 Corinthians 13, we'd see it again. This kind of love is demonstrative. There's action. There's involvement. There's movement. There's expression. It's not the kind of love that just sits back and snoozes. It doesn't yawn its way through life. It is not indifference. It has been noted that the opposite of love is not hate, but apathy. The opposite of love is not hate, but apathy. Ah, I think I'm doing okay. I don't want to get any more involved than I am. I'm good. I don't want to have to go. No, I don't have to reach out any further. Than I, no, this is good right here where I'm at. This is good enough. There was an interesting case that came before the courts in the state of Massachusetts back in the late 1920s. Concerned a man who was walking along a pier when suddenly he tripped over a rope and fell into the cold, deep waters of that ocean bay. He came up sputtering, screaming for help, and then sank beneath the surface. For some reason, he was unable to swim or stay afloat. And his friends could hear his faint cries in the distance, but they were too far away to rescue him. However, within only a few yards was a young man lounging on a a deck chair, sunbathing. Not only could the sunbather hear the drowning man plead for help, he was also an excellent swimmer. But the tragedy is, that he did nothing, nothing. He only turned his head to watch indifferently as the man finally sank and drowns. The family of the victim was so upset by that display of extreme indifference, they sued the sunbather. And with a measure of reluctance, the court ruled that the man on the dock had no legal responsibility whatsoever to try and save the drowning man's life. See, indifference may not be illegal, but it certainly is unchristlike. Where do we need to express our love to someone today? We can't just say, ah, I'm just fine the way it is. I don't want to see it. Where do we need to grow in our love, loved ones? Where do we need to grow in our love? How can we love others better? Because after all, love is Love does. And then we'll find the joy of true love, of true love. Let's pray.
God, as we hear these words, as we see them on this page, as we know they come from you, I pray that they'd be more than just words. That we'd leave here this morning with more than just, oh, that was nice. But with great conviction, this is how do I need to love better? Show us, show me that progression of love, for that is what binds our hearts together. Draw us, Lord, to a deeper walk with you first so we understand how much we're loved by you and that that compels us to love others and hold ourselves to that standard rather than any other standard. Show us from your word this morning, what it is that you want us to put into practice immediately and not wait, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.